Dude, if you guys are not fired up after that worship, I, I don't know what to do. No, that was awesome. Thank you, guys. I saw something recently on Twitter or Facebook or wherever that made me laugh. It was during the Olympic season, and they said, I think we should do the Olympics, but we should do it like we do jury duty. Like, everybody gets registered for the Olympics when you turn 18, and then every four years, they send out letters to everybody and says, hey, you're picked, you have to represent the United States in the Olympics this year. Same events, same events, like the 45,000 meter high, high dive that they jump off the platform and almost crack their head open every time, that's going to happen, and the, the uneven bars and gymnastics, that's going to happen. Winter, it's going to be the bobsled, the luge going down, speed skating, all that stuff. But it's like your average Joes that are eating potato chips on the couch the rest of the year. They're all of a sudden thrown into these situations and they've got to do the things. I think it would be funny maybe for the first time that you see it. But then after that, you'd kind of get tired of it, wouldn't you? You'd think, okay, I don't want to see another wipeout. I don't want to see another failure. I don't want to see another guy who can't do what he's being asked to do or she do what she's being asked to do, right? And the reason is, is because we want to watch people who are qualified at the events that they are experts in. We want to see people who are, are really good at what they do. We want to see the high dives go off without a, a hitch. We want to see the, the gymnasts do what they do. We want to see the speed skaters. We want to see the downhill skiers, the ski jumpers go off and just nail it on the, the landing because we, uh, we appreciate that. We see it and we go, wow, you, you're qualified to do something that I know nothing about, that I could never do, right? And so while it may be entertaining for a little bit, eventually we'd grow tired of it because we want the right person, somebody unquestionably qualified to serve in that role, unquestionably qualified to represent us. Well, that's what we have in Jesus when it comes to being represented before the Father, when it comes to Jesus' role as, our, as the Bible calls him, our great high priest. And as we begin to unpack what is one of the central themes to the book of Hebrews, which is Jesus as our high priest, it's introduced in our passage tonight. And then as we begin to unpack it tonight, we're going to see that his role as our high priest and the way that he represents us and what his life and death means for us is that it should totally transform the way that we view our lives and even the way that we view our impending and inevitable deaths as well. And so if you'll take your Bibles, open them up to Hebrews chapter 2. And let's read verses 14 through 18. Again, the theme of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is what? Jesus is better. And the writer is focusing on that and, and elaborating on that and holding that up for us and saying, look at how awesome Jesus is. And he's been start, starting with the angels, saying that Jesus is better than the angels, right? And he's coming to the end of, of that section, at least. And we pick up in verse 14, and the writer says, since therefore the, the children share in the flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He begins and says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. Well, what is this reference to children? We'll look back up just one verse previous in verse 13. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. 
This is hearkening back all the way to chapter 2, verse uh, 11, where he says, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call us brothers. And then he goes on to, to say that we are the children of God, as he is the, the son of God. We are all sons and daughters of God. We are children along with him in the sense that we are fellow heirs with him, that we are siblings of our older brother, the excellent and, and most prominent one in Jesus. And so he's saying, look, the reality is we are children who share in flesh and blood. Well, if Jesus is going to represent us, then it would mean that he has to also share in flesh and blood. And that's what he's about to get to. But let's talk about this concept of flesh and blood so that we can try to wrap our minds around what the author is talking about here. When we talk about flesh and blood, we're talking about more than just our, our biological makeup. This isn't primarily dealing with the fact that, yes, our bodies are made up of blood vessels and, and muscles and bones and skin and, and everything else. This is talking more about the, the humanity that is what you and I are, are known as, that, the, the world in which we inhabit. And so what is part of our, our flesh and blood? Well, number one, our, our mental limitations, right? Because of the fall and, and, and governing all of this concept of the flesh and blood is the fact that we live in a fallen world. And that's something that everybody is going to understand. But if you ask the most avowed atheist, hey, is this world broken? All they have to do is look at what's going on in Afghanistan right now to answer that question in the affirmative. Yes, this world is broken. You don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to be a follower of God to believe that there is something wrong with this world. We live in a fallen world. We know as, as believers that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 in the fall of, of Adam and Eve. And as a result of the fall, the, the, all of the rest of creation, including you and I, were, were put under this, this curse, the curse of the fall, a curse that Jesus would undo at the cross by becoming the curse for us. But still, we live in this broken world, and, and we're awaiting the fullness of redemption, where we will have the, the curse in all of its effects fully undone. But right now, we live in a cursed and broken world. We live in broken bodies, which means you and I have a mental limitation on us. There was a movie, I think, with Bradley Cooper a while ago called Limitless. And the whole concept was he would take these pills, which were drugs. Don't do drugs. It's bad. Let me just give that disclaimer ahead of time just to make sure that we're all on the same page. It's really bad. Not a good thing. But Cooper would take these pills that would allow him to access the full use of his mind. I mean, scientists will tell you, even secular scientists will tell you, we use maybe 10 to 15% of our full mental capacity. Well, think about what that is going to be like in the new heavens and new earth where we are able to, to use our minds to the fullness for the glory of God. But as it is, we have limitations. Some of you guys know that a little bit more intimately than others, right? As you are sitting there at exam time and everything else, you, you, you resonate with this fact a little bit more than, than everybody else in the room. We have mental limitations. Those of you who are in that category on the way home, you're going to get offended and get mad at me at that point. We have physical limitations, right? Our bodies break down. We have limitations in what we can do. I'm not in the Olympics. Why? Because I'm not good enough. I don't care what coach you throw at me. I don't care how much time you give me. I'm never going to be able to high jump. It's just not in my DNA, right? I have physical limitations. Why? Because I live in this broken, fallen world. My flesh and blood is under the weight of the curse. I also have spatial limitations. Meaning I can't be here and at home at the same time. I have to be only where I am. That's the only place that I can physically be. I can't be in multiple places at any one time, the way that God can, because God is omnipresent, right? That means he is everywhere all at one time. Not in everything, but everywhere. He inhabits, he's everywhere present all at the same time. That's not true of us. Why? Because we are flesh and blood. We live in a broken and fallen world under the weight of the curse. We also have temporal limitations, meaning that I'm bound by time. 
I can't travel backwards. I can't travel forwards in time. The only time that I have to live in it is right now in the present. Again, God exists outside of time. He is timeless. He created time. That's why when we struggle to, to come up with the concept of God had no beginning, it's even a false premise to begin with because it, it implies the etern- eternality of time. Time is not eternal. Time was a created construct. And it was created by God, who is a timeless being. You and I, we are not timeless. We are bound by the parameters of time. What about sickness in flesh and blood? We know that. Some of you guys who were on retreat know that all too well. Others of, of you have just experienced sickness in the past. We know our bodies get sick, right? Why? Because of the fall. Because we live in a cursed and broken and fallen world. There's going to come a day in the new heavens and new earth where there will be no more sickness anymore. And our bodies will not get sickness or this next one, disease. Our bodies get disease. Why? Because they're, they're broken, flesh and blood. They're, they're, they're under the weight of a fallen and broken world. They don't work as well as they could. This next one, decay. Right? I mean, honestly, everyone is decaying from the moment they're born. I know that's a pleasant thought. But our bodies are running down. And we reach our peak right around midlife, right? Or maybe a little bit earlier than that. But we reach our peak and then it, it continues to go down. But, but we're not born with this infinite amount of time before us. We're born with this clock on us. And our bodies are designed, just like Apple products, to break down over time so that they'll no longer work eventually. Decay. Temptation. Right? We live in a world of temptation. We live in a world because of sin where we are tempted to rebel against the creator. We're tempted to want things that the creator doesn't want us to desire. Things that aren't good for us. Dependence. We, you are not in charge of your next breath. Right? And you are born, and when you were born, how easy was it? How autonomous were you when you were born? You weren't at all, right? You needed somebody to feed you. You needed somebody to change you. You needed somebody to teach you to walk, teach you to talk. And so we are are dependent. And then finally, death. I wish there was a D for temptation because it would have just made a sweet Baptist, like, rattle off of Ds there, but I, I couldn't come up with one. But death, right? Death is part of being flesh and blood. We will ultimately die. None of us are going to live forever. This is what it means, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. This is the reality for all of us. We're not eternal beings. We're not divine. We're not holy. We're not sinless. We're not perfect. We're not all-powerful. We're not all-knowing. We're not all-present. We are limited in all of these ways. And the writer of Hebrews says, since that's true, Since that's true of all of us, since we are children of the flesh, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things. Our humanity beckoned the incarnation. It was calling out for God to help us, for Jesus to enter in and come after us because of our inability to move toward God or to move God toward us. We were alienated, we were separated, we were hostile towards him and incapable of remedying that fact. Our need, our sinfulness, our desperation, our hopeless estate, our separation. In fact, this is how Paul described our humanity. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, 
among whom we also once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is who we were in our flesh and blood. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, since that's who we were, and we needed a savior, we needed a redeemer, we needed a representative, we needed a high priest. We'll talk about that concept in just a minute. Since that's true, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Our humanity beckoned the incarnation and God answered by sending Jesus for us. And when Jesus partook of the same things, it means he shared so many of those limitations that we just talked about. Not the sinfulness, not the fallenness, not the corruption, right? Because he was sinless. He was perfect, fully obedient to the will of God. But he shared in the limitations. He entered in and took on flesh and became dependent on Joseph and Mary for sustenance from the time that he was born. He needed to learn how to walk, learn how to talk, learn how not to soil himself in his diaper. He had to become dependent on the need for his body to have food and water and sustenance to keep going. He had to uh, agree, so to speak, to take on the, the spatial limitation of the physical body that he was going to take on to his full deity. And in fact, he even set aside, not gave up, not completely lost, but set aside for a moment even some of his omniscience as God because he even said, no one knows the hour or day that the Son is going to come back, not even the Son of Man, right, but only the Father. So there was even a, a veiling of things like that when he likewise partook of the same things, our limitations, our frailty, our broken world, our actual flesh and blood. In fact, in verse 17, it will go on to say even more specifically, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Why? Well, because if he was going to represent us, he had to become like one of us. If he was going to be our high priest, he had to come and enter into our predicament, enter into our need. If he was going to redeem us and save us from our peril. In 2018, there was a Thai soccer team that got trapped in a cave. Do you all remember that, that story? The coach and his team decided that they were going to go explore this cave system. And they began to go in, and they got about two and a half miles into this cave. And then all of a sudden, because it was monsoon season, a massive storm hit, and the cave flooded, and they were stranded. And it took nine days, nine days being trapped in utter and complete and total darkness with no hope of getting out. Nine days before they were finally discovered and found. But that was only the beginning of the problems. See, to try to get to them they realized that this was going to be no small rescue operation. In fact, they, they called in the Thai Navy SEALs, the most expert divers that they had. They called in cave divers from all over the world to come to that one location to try to begin to plan and plot how were they going to get to this soccer team, this coach and these young boys. How are they going to get back in there and rescue them? They were up against another problem too because the amount of oxygen that was in the cave was limited and it was growing even less by the day, by the hour. Compounding that, these boys, because it's not common to have swimming pools or swimming at all in Thailand, none of these boys knew how to swim. To get each of the boys out, 
took two divers in precise execution. They had to train the boys how to swim because they didn't know how to. Then they had to train the boys how to use an oxygen apparatus while they were swimming out of the cave. And then they had to have a, a, a lead diver, as you see there, and then a trailing diver to make sure that the boy didn't drift. And the boy was actually tied to the lead diver there to make sure that he would get out okay. In fact, one of the Navy SEAL divers died in the process of this rescue. That's how intense, how difficult, how perilous it was. But, you know, after discovering these boys were in the cave, if the rescue team had decided, you know what we're going to do? We're going to stand on the outside of the cave and just call to them and encourage them and tell them, you can do it. Come on, just die. Just hold your breath and swim out. Just come towards my voice. Hey, I know you don't know how to swim, but we're going we're gonna to call to you and kind of tell you what to do and, and try to figure it out and practice and then, and then do your best to get out to us. See, if, if the rescuers had said, hey, you guys, you guys work hard enough to save yourselves and to get out here, then that would have been a, a worldwide tragedy because every single one of them, including the coach, would have been die- dead. There was no chance that they had to make it out. No, instead to be rescued, the divers had to put themselves in their peril. See, the divers had to go and put themselves and enter into the circumstances that they themselves found themselves in. The divers had to enter into that cave where there was desperation and no hope and darkness. And the way out was not going to be easy for those divers, just like it wasn't going to be easy for those boys. The one that gave his life, they were risking their lives to go in after these boys to see these boys rescued because they knew there was no other way to rescue them. Y'all, that's what we're talking about when it says that he likewise partook of the same things. We needed Jesus to enter into our situation, to enter into our circumstances. To, to identify with us in our peril, in our danger, to do what we could not do in order that we could be saved. See, if God had just opened up the windows of heaven and called out to us, hey, just try harder. Just figure it out. Just be a little bit more obedient. Just be a little bit more godly. Just be a little bit more holy. Just, just stop sinning. Then we would have been like those boys in that cave. We would have been toast. But we needed him to come in and enter into our predicament and enter into our peril and enter into our need. And that's what he did when he partook of the same things. In the theological world, this is called the hypostatic union. That is that fully God took on full humanity. 100% God, 100% man. No mixing of those two identities whatsoever, but both existing side by side in the person of Jesus Christ. 100% 100% God, 100% man, and he came after us. This is what Paul describes in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 7. When he says, who though he was in the form of God, speaking of Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto, but emptied himself, not of his deity, but of some of his rights, some of his, his, his position and his prestige, right? Emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is what it means, that that Jesus, fully God, took on full humanity to himself. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying when he says he partook of the same things. Well, by Jesus partaking of the same things, one of the other things that he partook of that we talked about with our limitations is he partook of death. He partook of death. Verse 14, that through death, he partook of the same things. For what purpose? That, in order that, for the purpose that... Through death, 
he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. That word destroy means to render useless, powerless, of no effect. When Paul says in Romans chapter 6 that the body of sin has been brought to nothing, it's the same idea there. That the devil has been brought to nothing. He's been rendered powerless in our lives. How? Because of the death of Christ. Because he likewise partook of the same things, including death, that he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Now that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? The one who has the power of death. It's not that Satan inherently holds the keys to death. Right? Satan doesn't decide who dies and when they die. Who decides that? God does. And we know even from the account that we find in Job chapter 1 that Satan does nothing that he does without the divine permission of God. And so what we read here is that, that God has turned over, in, in a sense, this authority of the, the fear of, I think more so, death to Satan. And the way that Satan wields death is that Satan being, as John says in John 8, 44, the father of what? The father of, of lies. And you remember Satan was there in Genesis chapter 3 in the garden when he came to Eve and said, did God really say? And Satan is there to twist and pervert the word of God. And he's, he's there to tempt and he's there to lead astray with any means possible. That Satan opens the door to and pushes us towards and tempts us towards that three-letter word that changes everything about our relationship with God. Starts with an S. What is it? Sin, right? And sin yields what? The wages of sin is death. So in that sense, the devil is the one who holds the power of death because the devil is the one who plays in and wields the, the temptations that lead us into what? Sin and death. And so it's through the cross and through the death of Jesus that he dealt with death, that he dealt with the one who holds the power of death, that is Satan. Why? Because he dealt with the problem that leads to death, which is what? Sin. He dealt with the peril. He dealt with the greatest threat to us by becoming like us, by taking on, by partaking of the same things. I don't know if you fear dying, but hopefully if you're in Christ, while you may not want to die, hopefully, hopefully you're not fearful of death in the same way that maybe you used to be before you became a Christian. And the reason why is because Jesus died your death so that you no longer have to be afraid of it. We sing in that song, Christ be magnified, right? Death is just a doorway into what? Into resurrection life. That's a perspective now that as Christians that we can have. See, the world fears death. One of the reasons that COVID has such a paralyzing grip on everybody in the world is because it's, it's something that they can't control. And before, they used to think, oh, well, you know, yeah, cancer happens to some people. Yeah, murder happens to some people. And yeah, war happens to some people. And famine happens to some people. But you know, it doesn't happen to me. I'm good. I've got my car. I've got my job. I've got my family. I've got my health. I've got my Peloton bike, right? Whatever. They, they thought they were good to go and that they were fine. And now all of a sudden there's a virus that's entered in that nobody feels like they can control or predict. And now we're hearing about mutations and changing and permeations and all these, these things and, and ICU beds filling up and everything else. And is it the third wave, the fourth wave, the 7,000th wave, whatever it is in the CDC guidelines and mass no mass, And everybody's terrified. Why? Because ultimately they're not terrified of a virus. They're terrified of what? Dying. Because why? Well, because... They don't know what comes next. 
and they have no confidence in what comes next. See, for the unbeliever, death is the end. For the unbeliever, death is a period, not a comma. For the unbeliever, death is, is paralyzingly terrifying. But it's not so for the Christian. Why? Because since we shared in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things in order that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil. And verse 15, look at it. Deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We no longer have to fear death is what he's saying here. That in Christ, our perspective of death has forever been altered, forever been changed. And that's point number one tonight is this. Rethink death in light of Jesus. Rethink death in light of Jesus. You're already in Hebrews chapter 2. Glance up at verse 9. Speaking of Jesus and his incarnation, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So you no longer have to fear death. Why? Because Jesus took that for you. Well, Pastor PJ, aren't I still going to die physically? Yeah, you, you might die physically if Jesus doesn't come back for his church first. Well, what, what's my physical death going to be like? I, I don't know. Well, people suffer horribly sometimes before they die. Yeah, they do. Christians suffer horribly sometimes before they die. Y yeah, they do. But death ushers you as a Christian where? Into the presence of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Like the Apostle Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so you don't have to fear death. You don't have to fear dying anymore. Because it's not the unknown. It's not eternal torment. It's not an end, but a beginning. And it's a much greater reality in the presence of Jesus than any reality than we have here, which is what led the Apostle Paul to say, I wish I was with Jesus because to be with Jesus is far better than anything this world has. Paul talks about this dealing with death in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. For indeed, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Again, verse 15, Jesus came to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to a lifelong slavery. All those who through fear of death were subject to the slavery of sin, subject to the slavery of looking for an escape from this world that this world will never offer you. A slave is powerless, hopeless, helpless, subject to their master. But once a slave dies, what power does a master have over that slave? None. None, right? And this is what Paul says in Romans 6 later on. He says this. He says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, 
we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, might be rendered powerless, so that we would no longer be, here it is, enslaved to sin. And sin brings what? Death, right? So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Y'all, if you are in Christ, you have died to sin. Sin no longer has mastery over you. Sin has no authority over you. When you sin, you don't sin because you have to. No Christian sins because they have to. You sin because you choose to. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion, no longer has control over Jesus. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also, Christian, must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. See, the death of Christ changes forever our perspective on the death that we will all one day face. Christian, a a fear of death ultimately at its root betrays a, a, a need for a greater faith in the promises of God. If you fear dying and it grips you with an anxiousness, I'm not saying that like you're sitting out there going, well, I'd, I'd rather not die tonight. Well, okay, I get that. I'm, I'm there with you, right? However, if, if it grips your heart with an anxiety over the thought of dying, then what's going on there is a, a lack of a confidence and faith in the promises of God. Some of these promises here, 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. We would rather be away from the body and at what? At home with the Lord. So to die is to go home, is what Paul is saying. To die is to be at home with the Lord. Philippians 1, 19 through 24. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit Jesus Christ of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire, you want to know my desire, Paul says, I want to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. See, Christian, you can have the mindset of Paul to say, hey, I want to go be with Jesus because that is far better. You no longer have to fear death. Because why? Because Christ partook of the same things that through death he might render powerless the one who holds the power of death. That is Satan. Or Paul at the end of his life. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Paul knows he's about to die. By the way, he's in Roman custody, and this death is not going to be fun. It's going to be execution. But Paul says what? I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now, henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. Y'all, Paul's mind was focused on what was waiting for him on the other side of the doorway of death. It was Jesus. That's why we no longer have to fear death, guys. 
Because like Paul said in Romans 6, the death has no dominion over Jesus. Guess what now? We are united to the death like Jesus. That means death has no dominion over us. Do you guys really want to live for eternity here? Do you really want to live forever here on this earth with things the way they are? I don't think you do. When the alternative is the new heavens and the new earth, and the glorious reality of a God who's going to wipe away every tear. He's going to unbreak everything that's broken. He's going to mend what needs mending. All those limitations that I talked about earlier, he's going to do away with those limitations of our, our broken and fallen state. If you're given that choice, which one are you really wanting to choose? It, that's why I said it, it, it's a, a matter of faith. Because if death still scares you, the only reason it still scares you is because you question whether or not this is real. Again, Romans 5, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Life from Christ, not death, life from him. See, Jesus took on mortality and in dying broke the power that Satan once held over us, wielded over us, because in dying, Jesus broke death. Acts chapter 2, 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. Why? Because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Death couldn't hold him. Well, guess what, Christian? When you die, guess what? Death is not going to be able to hold you either. Because he partook of the same things. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul puts it this way. For the perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came in the flesh, likewise partook of those things, so that you and I no longer have to fear death. And at the heart of that was the incarnation, the gospel, the cross pick back up in verse 16. We no longer have to fear death, for surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Okay, so again, he's going back to the whole context, remember, of chapter 2, where he's arguing, hey, Jesus is better than angels. He's saying it's not the angels that Jesus is interested in helping. The angels that rebelled with Satan, guess what, guys? They are doomed to eternal destruction. There is no gospel for angels, but there's a gospel for you. It's not angels that he's held, but it's the offspring of Abraham. You're saying, well, am I the offspring of Abraham? Father Abraham had many sons, many sons. And, and what? I am one of them. I know it's a kid's song, but it's, there's truth in it if you're in Christ. Paul talks about that in Galatians chapter 3. God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you will all the nations of the earth be blessed. Through one of your descendants, right? You and I, we are offspring of Abraham, even though if you have no Jewish blood running through your body whatsoever. 
You really are a son and daughter of Abraham. It's us that he helps is what he says there. Therefore, verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful, here's our word, high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Okay, Jesus is high priest. Get ready to start to hear a lot about that in this book because that is a central theme of the book. In fact, one author called it the central nerve of the book of Hebrews is Jesus as our high priest. We just sang about that, right? Before the throne of God above, we sang, I have a a great high priest whose name is love because love rhymes with above. No, but we sang that. I have a great high priest. What does that mean that you have a great high priest, that I have a great high priest before the throne of God above? That's language that takes some some digging for us because we we don't deal in the world of, of priests, Somebody comes up to me and says, oh, you're a priest. I'm going to say, no. Priest of all, of all believers, sure. But I'm, no, I'm not a priest, right? We don't have a, a temple. We don't have a sacrificial system. We don't have a great high priest. Well, if you think back to the Old Testament, if you can go back there, maybe daily Bible reading, or just if you can go back to the last time you were thinking about this or learned about this, they had the temple. Well, the temple had the sacrificial system. The priest was the one who would offer the sacrifice on behalf of the people of Israel. And there was one who was the chief, the, the great high priest, who was the one that was the, the priest above all other priests. And this is the one, and, and specifically, he would go in on one day a year called the Day of Atonement, which is still se- celebrated today. It's, it's in September. And the Day of Atonement was the day of, it's called Yom Kippur, now in the, the Jewish feast calendar. But it was the day where the priest would come before all of the people and he would enter into the Holy of Holies. This was the only day of year that the priest was allowed to go into the very presence of the glory of God, right? The Ark of the, the, the Covenant was in the Holy of Holies. And he, was, he would go in before the Holy of Holies. He would bring the, the sin offering. He would offer atonement, that is to, the satisfaction of God's wrath uh, for, for all the sins of the people. And then he would, he would do this. They would go, come back out and there would be two goats on the Day of Atonement. This is all recorded in Leviticus chapter 16, if you want to go look at it more in detail. But one goat was the, 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 the sin offering, and that goat was sacrificed. That goat was killed because the wages of sin is what? Is death. That sin demands the blood life of the animal. And so the, the, the goat was slaughtered as a reminder to the people that their sin deserves death, and they needed somebody to take their place. Right? There was nothing special about the goat. This was just a goat. I mean, this thing was eating cans before it came into the temple, right? This is just the goat that got chosen to be the, the goat for the Day of Atonement. So this goat, it's not that the power was in the blood. We'll talk about that later in Hebrews. But that the, the, the goat represented for the people, hey, your sin deserves death. And you need God to intervene and substitute another death for you. And that's this goat in this instance. So that goat was the sin offering. But then there was another goat. And this other goat, the high priest, remember the high priest is the one doing all this, sacrificing the goat, and then the high priest would take this other goat, and this other goat came to be known as the scapegoat. Have any of y'all heard of that terminology before, right? A scapegoat is the one that's blamed for what? Somebody else's sin. Well, the scapegoat would be taken and the high priest would confess all the sins of the people of Israel on the, the head of this scapegoat. And then he would take the scapegoat and he would send the scapegoat outside the camp and away from the Israelite people into the wilderness. And symbolically, that goat would take away the sin of all the people. 
So the high priest presided over the sacrifice, the, the life that was given for the, the payment of the sin, and then he would, he would also preside over the removal of the sin from the people through the casting out of this goat that had all the sins cast over its head into the wilderness for the people. Okay? That was the, the significance of the high priest. And now the writer of Hebrews, who's writing to a group of people who would have known all about that. That would have been fresh on their mind. And he hits that phrase, we have a, a, a merciful and faithful high priest, and the e-brakes are being pulled all over the place with these people. Because they're going back to Leviticus 16. They're going back to the, the high priest. They're going back to the day of atonement. They're going back to the two goats going, okay, wait a minute. Whoa, Jesus is our high priest? The writer describes him actually three different ways here. He says he's first merciful. We have a merciful high priest. Mercy is what? Not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. But mercy is not getting what you do deserve. What do we deserve as sinners? Death. And we, at the same time, yet didn't get that. Why? Because God is a God of mercy. And through providing Jesus as our high priest, he is a high priest who is a merciful high priest. His mercy is also his compassion that goes out towards us. Seeing us in our plight, being moved as Jesus was. You remember when he was on earth, seeing the crowds, he felt what? He felt compassion towards them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. His heart went out to them. He loved them in their neediness. And even as he was lamenting over his own people, Israel, remember when he was weeping and he was saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have taken you in as a, a mother hen with her offspring. See, Jesus felt his heart, he agonized, he, he mourned over the plight of lost and sinful humanity. He's a merciful priest, but he's also a faithful priest. Merciful and faithful. See, uh, in the past, the, the high priest would come and go. They would be changed out. It was this one, then it was that one, then it was this one, then it was that one. There, there was no faithful in the sense that you could always rely on this one guy to be the high priest, that, that he would always be there and that he would be the guy and you could rely on him and he would never fail and he would never die. No, there were high priests that would even not carry out their duties the way that they were supposed to, who would fail in their execution of their duties. And there were high priests who would need atonement themselves. In fact, that was one of the things that a high priest had to do before the day of atonement. The high priest had to, to offer sacrifices for his own sin before he could stand up and deal with the sins of the, the whole people. Well, Jesus, in contrast, is the perfectly faithful high priest. He was perfectly obedient, perfectly faithful in the execution and the charge of his duties. He would never leave, never forsake, never abandon. In fact, we're about to see in just a moment that he is still your high priest, ongoing in that role, even right now where you sit tonight. He's faithful. And then the third thing, not only merciful, faithful, but also he's the one who makes propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation comes back and goes all the way back to the, the Leviticus 16 scene. Because the, the propitiation is the sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God and also removes the guilt of our sin. You've got the goat that's the sin offering and the goat that's the, that's the scapegoat. Jesus is both at the cross. He is the, the one who makes propitiation, satisfies God's wrath against our sin. How? Well, he 
removes our sin from us as far as the Bible says what the east is from the west. He removes our guilt. It's a word called expiation. It's a fancy word that means that you are cleansed from your sins. They're removed from you completely. And he is the high priest who did that. Paul describes this and uses the same word this way. Romans 3.25, whom God put forward, Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. There's that word. How? By his blood. It was at the cross that he was the propitiation for our sins. To be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance or patience, he had passed over the former sins. Y'all, again, we need this high priest. We need Jesus. Because without him, we're left without a mediator. We're left without a representative. We're left without any intercession. We're left in our sins and without our sins dealt with. We're left hopeless and despairing. We are left alienated from God. We are left hostile to God. We are left objects of God's wrath without the high priest. Just like Israel would have been if they never had a high priest. So much more so we, if we didn't have Jesus. Point number two tonight is this, though. We do have Jesus. Thank God for our divine high priest. Thank God for our divine high priest. He's not a man, but he's God in the flesh. Jesus, fully God, fully man. But to represent us before the Father, he had to be made like us, the text says. Had to be. It was necessary for him to be made like us in every respect. Because to make the sacrifice that provided our cleansing, here's the deal, y'all. Jesus had to be qualified to do that. Well, the way that he could be qualified to, to offer the sacrifice that, that led to you and I being forgiven is he had to perfectly live a life of full obedience to the Father. We talk about the, the concept of, of your righteousness is, is not a works-based righteousness, right? Have you guys all heard that before, that you, righteousness is not works-based? How many of y'all heard that righteousness is not works-based? Okay, it is works-based, just not your works. Your righteousness is works-based. It's Jesus' works. Your righteousness is merited. It's Jesus' merit, not yours. But this is why he had to be made like us because if Jesus just like up in heaven was like, poof, sin's gone, he can't do that because there had to be a sacrifice. There had to be the death for sin, right? So that in, that, in, in that sense, he had to be made like us so that he could actually die, right? But then uh, we needed a righteousness that wasn't ours. Well, he had to be made like us so that he could live the life that we couldn't live, so that he could fulfill the law that we failed to fulfill. So that then at the cross, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he takes our sin, right? Just like the high priest casting the sins on the goat. He takes our sin on him and takes it away from us. And he gives us what? Uh, righteousness. What righteousness? The righteousness that he earned by living that perfectly obedient life for 30 some odd years. You see, that's why, guys, Jesus couldn't have come down just as a fully grown man and been like, okay, just bring the cross. Let's just get this thing over with. No, he had to go through what we failed at. He had to live 30 whatever years, not because 30 whatever years is a magic number, but, but he had to prove that he was obedient to the Father in every respect. He had to live completely obedient to the law of God. He had to be 100% righteous where we were a 100% failure so that he could become that failure for us and give us his righteousness. That's why he had to be made like us. Because if he wasn't made like us, that never happens and you and I are still left in our sins and he can't be our high priest. Because if he wasn't made like us, he's got nothing to offer. 
But here's the thing, y'all. The enemy is going to want you to think that you don't need that. That you don't need him as your high priest. That you don't need propitiation. The enemy is going to want you to think and buy into the fact that you're not that bad. That your sins aren't that big of a deal. Other people's sins are bigger than your sin. The enemy wants you to believe that everything's going to work out in the end if you're just a good enough person and you show up at church enough. The enemy is going to want you to think that you've got things mostly right. Maybe you don't have things 100% right, but mostly right is going to be good enough. The enemy is going to want you to downplay your need for Jesus. If you're a Christian, the enemy is going to want you to downplay your ongoing need for Jesus. Jesus is our high priest. We need to be grateful for this. Back in 1 Samuel 2, 35, the Lord was already promising this. I will raise up for myself what a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Thank God for your divine high priest. Verse 18. For, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, verse 17, so that he might become a faithful and merciful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. How did he do that? Well, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is then able to help those who are being tempted. What does it mean that Jesus suffered when tempted? Let me ask you a question. Do you think Jesus was able to feel temptation in the same way that you and I are able to feel and experience temptation? You don't know what to say to that, do you? Well, the answer is yes. In fact, we'll get there in Hebrews. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us, but one who has been tempted in every respect as we are. What did that mean? Well, let's dive into the Greek because clearly it can't mean that he was tempted like us. No, it means he was tempted as we are tempted what was the difference? What does he say? Yet without what? Yet without sin. But he was tempted as we are tempted. But he endured all of those temptations. The temptations that you and I face, right? Jesus endured the temptation, resisted the t- temptation, and did not sin. Indeed, I would even venture to say he could not sin. Because Jesus was fully God and fully man. There was no scenario in which Jesus could have sinned because for Jesus to sin, he would have ceased to be who? God. But that doesn't mean that he couldn't feel temptation. The ability to feel temptation is not equal to your ability to sin. And so Jesus was tempted as we are, yet without sin, as he says in Hebrews 4.15. And he was even tempted in ways that you and I aren't tempted. What does that look like? Well, how about the Garden of Gethsemane? As he's in angst over what's before him with the cross. Praying repeatedly. Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. And yet not my will, but your will be done. The temptation even of the human will there of Jesus. Wrestling there with the the divine will that was in front of him. Was he ever not going to do the Father's will? No, he was always going to do the Father's will. However, there was that agony and that angst within him. He suffered when tempted. We've already seen this, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. 
it was fitting that God, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect, in other words, qualified through suffering. Since he suffered when tempted and endured perfectly, then, verse 18, he's able to help those who are being tempted. That's you and I. He is able presently to help us who are being tempted. Y'all, as your high priest, Jesus is interceding for you right now. Hebrews 7. He ever lives to make intercession for us. We sang it as well. Whoever lives and pleads for me. He's not too busy to respond to your pleas. He's not aggravated. Jesus is your, quite literally, he is your advocate, your helper. And he's able to help you. Final point tonight is this. Praise God for the help you have in Christ. Praise God for the help that you have in Christ. Y'all, when you are facing temptation, you do not have a high priest who doesn't understand. And I gotta stop preaching a sermon that's coming. But still, he's been there. He's walked it. He's endured it. He's suffered it. And he did it perfectly. And he went to the cross. And part of the reason he went to the cross is to free you from the power of sin and the temptation as we talked about. The whole concept of being freed from the fear of death. So that Romans 6, you no longer have to be enslaved by sin. When you sin, you sin because you choose to sin, not because you have to sin. Don't come to me and tell me, yeah, I slept with my boyfriend, I slept with my girlfriend, but, but man, it, the temptation was just too strong and we couldn't not do it. That's baloney. You, no, of course you can resist it. If you are in Christ, you've been freed from the power of sin. Sin does not own you. You can say no to yourself, no to your flesh. And that's what it means. He's able to help those who are being tempted. How? Is there a, a magic phrase or, or formula that you need to pray? Are there those, those special words that you need to, to figure out to, that you can throw up to God and be like, okay, here we go. I'm going to say this word and then all of a sudden I'm not going to be tempted anymore. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's able to help you. What's that help? The help is the cross. The help is salvation. The help is the fact that you have a high priest who now represents you before the Father and he pleads not your righteousness, but his righteousness. Not your merit, but his merit. Not your works, but his work. That's the help that Jesus offers you, Christian. But it is transformative. It does help you when you battle temptation. Because now you are in Christ, you are free to say no. And here's the deal, y'all. Some of you are looking for something for me to tell you when you come in and sit down with me in my office and meet with me and talk about this sin or that sin that, that you're struggling with and battling with. And here's the deal, guys. At, at some point in time, it comes down to discipline. It comes down to you choosing Jesus over your flesh. It comes down to you saying no to yourself and yes to God. It comes down to you saying, I love Jesus more than I love myself. And you, you want to look at me and tell me you can't do that. I'm going to look at you and, and throw Hebrews back at you and say, yes, you can if you are in Christ. And some of y'all don't like that. But I'm not sorry. Because I don't want you to, to coast yourself through your life thinking that everything's hunky-dory between you and God when it might not be. 
Y'all, if you are owned by sin and you just have sin beating you down and yet you are sitting there going, yeah, but I'm a Christian. But then outside of here, that you just have a life that's just rampaging with sin, that you just are dripping with fleshly lusts and desires, that your life is characterized by rebellion outside of these four walls. Guess what, y'all? Chances are you're not a Christian. Well, but, but it's by grace I've been saved through faith. Yeah, exactly. But man, that will revolutionize your life. It's not going to leave you. Jesus will save you where you are. He won't leave you where you are. Look, it, this is a reclamation project. You are being redeemed for his purposes. Yeah, he's able to help you. Because of the cross. So, Christian, be saturated with the gospel every single day. Never get past the gospel. Never get over the gospel. Remind yourself of the freedom that you have in Jesus always. Martin Luther put it this way. He said this, The highest of all God's commands is this, that we ever hold up before our eyes the image of his dear Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. He must daily be to our hearts the perfect mirror in which we behold how much God loves us and how well in his infinite goodness as a faithful God he has grandly cared for us and that he gave his dear son for us. Do not let this mirror and the throne of grace be torn away from your eyes. Y'all, when Jesus, when you are tempted by the lures of sin, Jesus is there, desires, wants to help you. But guys, stop asking me for a book to read to overcome your sin. You want to overcome your sin? It's love Jesus more. How do I do that? Pick up your Bibles. Start praying. I tried that. It didn't work. Keep going. Keep reading. Keep praying. Realize that you can say no to your sin. You don't have to be owned by it. You don't have to do that again. Yo, when you are experiencing the temptation, when it's right there and you're in the heat of it, how often do you pray to Jesus? Why not more? I have a, a few thoughts on that. I think it's because some of the lies that we buy into from the enemy in the face of temptation. One of them is, hey, you can do this on your own. You're, you're good. You, you've got the willpower to resist this. You, you don't need the Bible. You don't need prayer. You'll, you'll just, why don't you just find another blog or something like that about overcoming that sin and then you'll be good to go. You can do it on your own. You can't do it on your own. Well, just, just stop and just think about something else. Uh, well, you know what? You can't pray because you're dirty. You can't. Really? Remember Isaiah 6? You can't pray to that holy, holy, holy God when you're being tempted by that. It's disgusting. You're a failure. You're going to go back again to the Lord with that same temptation? Seriously, really? How, how long do you think his fuse is with you? How many times do you think he's going to listen to you? You know what? God's done with you. 
He's not going to hear you. He's not going to listen to your prayer. Might as well just give in. See, these are some of the short circuits that, that interrupt our response, which should be in the face of temptation, I'm going to go to the Lord in prayer. What did Jesus teach his disciples to pray? Father, lead me not what into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Instead, respond with these truths. Pray because you can't do it on your own. This is that tension that we have. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but it's knowing that it's God that has worked in you, both the will and to work for his good pleasure. The reason I'm telling you, you can say no to your sin is because you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, Christian. That's the power to say no to sin. Because Jesus has freed you from the bonds. But you can't do it by yourself. Pray also because you're feeling the prompting to pray. And anytime you feel the Holy Spirit nudging you to pray, pray. There's never a bad time to pray. How do I know? Because Paul said what? Pray what? Without ceasing. You feel the prompt, prompting to pray, even if you're in the heat of the, the temptation with sin, stop and pray and ask that God would intervene and, and deliver you from that temptation. Pray because God wants you to pray. Again, the commands are there in Scripture. Pray without ceasing. Pray at all times. Jesus said, we ought to pray and not lose heart. Pray also because God has promised to help you. One of the best things that you can do in the face of temptation is, is pray the promises of God. Lay hold of the promises of God. God, you are faithful. God, you've promised that you are working all things together for my good, that I would be conformed to the image of Jesus. God, you have promised in your word that no temptation has overtaken me that is not common to man. But with every temptation, God, you have said you will provide a way of escape. Help me to find the way of escape right now. Pray because Jesus has redeemed you. He's freed you from that sin that's tempting you in that moment. He's bought you from that sin that's tempting you in that moment. Pray because Jesus has opened the way for you. Again, how has he helped us? He's able to help you. Because he suffered while being tempted, he's able to help you. How? The gospel, the cross, that's the help. It's right there. It's not some mystical, magical, what words do I have to say to get this you know, storehouse of God's help for me? No, 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 you have it. It's yours at the cross. It's yours in the gospel. Y'all, I hope the facts of, of Jesus' perfect life and sacrificial death and this idea of him as your high priest, your great high priest, hopefully it does encourage you tonight. That you have this high priest uniquely qualified to represent you before the Father. Merciful and faithful. This knowledge should comfort us and it should also compel us to live holy, knowing that you have all the help you need in your battle against sin. At the cross, and through your high priest who is 
presently, right now, ongoing, making intercession for you. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful, so, so grateful, so abundantly, overwhelmingly grateful for Christ as our high priest, that we need him. Lord, as the Israelites needed those goats, we needed Jesus so, so much more, God. Lord, your law was the standard, absolute, 100% perfection, and yet all of us we know from Scripture and our own experience have fallen short of that absolute standard of perfection time and time and time again. And so, Father, we pray. I pray, God, for students in this room tonight who may not be right with you, that they would get right with you tonight. Students in this room, God, I, I pray that who don't know Christ, who don't have Christ as their high priest right now, I pray that they would feel that vulnerability, that they would feel that exposure, and that they would want to do everything and anything necessary to see that Christ would be their high priest before the night ends. Lord, we know that awareness only comes from you. Father, this world is broken. We live in it, and our bodies are broken, and our minds are limited. And we face temptation day in and day out. But God, I, I pray that we would daily remind ourselves of the gospel, daily keep the cross in the forefront of our minds so that we will be saturated with thoughts of the fact that we are redeemed, that we are free from sin. Sin has no hold on us now because of Christ as our great high priest who died the death that we could not die so that we would be set free, so that we would no longer have to be enslaved by a fear of death, a fear of sin. Lord God, we thank you so much for that reality that we enjoy right now if we are in Christ. We praise you and give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.